This is 2022, and your phone will tell you it's 2022. You don't have to change your calendars like you used to before. Your phone takes care of that. And uh, this is a reminder today that you never know what's going to happen. I thought we were going to get away with a pretty mild uh, 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 winter, and uh, today, bang, everything changes on a dime. And that's the way some things happen. They change quickly. And so we don't know what awaits us, what changes may come in this year, but we do know that we have a God who is with us and who knows the changes and knows how to deal with them. And so I want to encourage you, uh, we're, we're, we have something different today, and I, I'm going to explain that in a second, but I want to encourage you that, that this year to make two simple resolutions and then adhere to them. Uh, one is pray, uh, to find a place, to find a time, to find people that you can pray with uh, each week. As you pray with people, you will grow. But prayer is probably one of the greatest ministries that we can have for others and our church. And we want to start our, our year with prayer. That's why you're, you've heard about and you'll hear more about the 24 hours of prayer that, that we are going to be having this Friday. And I would encourage you to sign up. It's all on Zoom. Uh, we want to have people praying for our church and one another all through the, uh, the day for that 24 hours. Would you please consider spending an hour, a time period in prayer uh, this coming Friday and Saturday for the 24 hours? It begins Sunday, Saturday, Sunday night and ends at the end of Saturday um, around 5 or 6. The second thing I would say is do what you're doing right now. You have, you have made a commitment to either be here or be online and organize your week this year and make Jesus the first part. Put him in it and then let everything else fill around it. And so I encourage you, what you're doing now uh, is, is the way that we organize our lives around Jesus and to be consistent. Faith, we, it's even easier now because we have... Uh, we can, if we miss being here, we can uh, be online. And so your spiritual life will grow if you pray with others and you commit to worship God. So that's my New Year's sermon right there. You got off easy, New Year's sermon. But before we start, I want to pray because we've had a number of people have unexpected deaths in their family. And uh, we want to pray for them. So would you gather in your prayer mind and bow your head and pray? If you're online, would you bow your head too and let's pray? And we want to, Father, first commit ourselves to you this year. It's the beginning of a new year. And we just want to ask that you would help us to walk with you, to be following you, to be reminded of your mercy and your goodness, your presence, your promise, I will be with you. And that promise we know doesn't mean everything's going to go easy and without difficulty, but it does promise us that as we walk through this world, anything we face, we can depend on you. And so this year, help us to remember that and grab a hold of that promise of your faithfulness and your goodness and your love toward us. I want to specifically lift up Jen Trepner as she's lost her uh, stepdad in such a unexpected quick way for her and Glenn and their family and her mom. May you bring grace to them and strength. For Paul and Ruth Ann Simpson as Ruth Ann's dad died suddenly as well and the loss in that family and what impact, the spiritual impact that Roy had on them and the loss of having him in their lives and the, the grief that they carry. And then we pray for John and the Karam family, as they unexpectedly said goodbye to Anne, who touched so many lives. And so these families we lift up. And we know that they will be, this will be a time of struggle. May they find your grace as they move into this new year. And may they know that you were present because of the way you have revealed yourself and given strength to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We want to try something a little bit different. 
And that is, we recognize that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're seeking for Jesus, you're going to have questions, and questions are healthy. They often bring with them doubts. But when you don't get those questions answered, those doubts can sometimes undermine your faith. But doubts are actually a great way to grow if you're willing to put the effort into either asking questions or seeking out answers from the Bible, from uh, other people, from good sources. Uh, you grow through your questions. So we welcome questions here. I have questions that I face as I don't read the Bible and things that I'm not sure about. And I go, God, I don't understand how this works. I don't understand what this says about you. And, and so these questions are actually healthy. They spur us on. So we thought uh, we would like to start a thing called Hot Seat Sunday, which is basically you get to ask the questions and we have to answer them. Now, the first time, which is this time, is a little more tame. We thought we would introduce it. We, we asked the questions ahead of time. So clearly we've had some time to think about those questions. But what we would like to do is get a sense of what this Hot Seat Sunday would be like. And then next June, we're going to have another one, but we're going to try to go live then. By that, I mean you have your cell phone, you can, we'll have a message, you can text a question, or if we answer one, you can text a, a follow-up question. And so it's going to be a little more out there, a little more wild, and, and we will have somebody filtering the questions because we know somebody's going to ask some funny questions. Maybe some of those will get through. But our idea, whether online or whether you're here, you can text text that number and we will respond to those questions. And so that will make it uh, your questions as much as possible. Now, obviously, we don't have time to answer every question, but we, will, we would like to, to try this for a number of times to see if this is helping you. And if it's not helping you, we'll get rid of it. But if it is helping you, we will continue it. So as we ask for questions in the future, feel free. Now, these are questions you're going to see uh, that you ask. We've been asking for a couple of weeks. These are questions that you ask. We picked several of them, and we want to try to do our best to give answers that uh, make sense uh, from a Christian worldview. So here's our first question on Hot Seat Sunday is, how would you prove to someone God exists? Well, this is just a softball, an easy one, so we'll give it to the worship pastor since he and I'll get to him. So, Ashley. All right. Thank you so much, Ed. All right. So when we deal with this question, we have to first define what we mean by prove. You know, if we, if we think, well, can we prove God's existence scientifically, that will be, it would not make logical sense because science is meant to um, analyze the cause and effects of everything within our natural cosmos, within our universe. So if we want to use science to explain something that is beyond that universe, it would make no sense. That's like trying to explain a round circle, well, a triangular circle. Um, but what we can do is we can use deductive reasoning as people form theories and hypotheses to get to can God exist? Is it logical to assume God can exist? And we can start off by using science and using the law of causality. So the law of causality states that everything that begins to exist has a cause. What does that mean? So that means this platform began to exist, and the cause of this was Jeff Bowdoin and his team. This building began to exist, and we can assume it had a couple of builders. And just like that, science has also demonstrated to us that our universe is finite and that it has a beginning. So we know it has a beginning, and if we apply the law of causality to that, we know that a beginning requires a beginner. So if we think about what characteristics a beginner can have, if we again look scientifically, we can see that space, time, and matter came into existence at the beginning of our universe. So we can automatically assume that the beginner of our universe has those qualities, being timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. We can also then um, deduce that, that the beginner also has to be personal, meaning able to make decisions, because an impersonal force like a rock cannot cause anything. So there has to be a mind behind that as well, as well as extremely powerful, because if we look at all the energy within our universe, there's a lot. So then we can use, we can continue scientifically speaking, if we look at design. Every design has a designer. I think that's pretty easy to assume. And according to science, there is complexity in design within our universe, within our eyes, within everything around us. And a design implies a designer. 
So if we look at the characteristics of God, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, extremely powerful, personal, able to make decisions, and really intelligent because all the designs within our DNA, the human genome, everything comes from an intelligent mind. Then we can also go to morality and a sense of universal morality, everything good and evil within our world. Now, you don't have to serve God to just have this gut-feeling instinct that it's always wrong to rape babies. Like, I think we can all agree that that's just morally wrong. But none of us can define why it is morally wrong. There's these universal moral truths that is true for all of us. And moral law requires a moral law giver. So if we take all of those characteristics, timeless, spaces, immaterial, personal, extremely powerful, intellectual, as well as the objective standard of good, we can now use deductive reasoning in looking that we know this uncaused first cause has all of these characteristics, and it just so happens that the God of the Bible meets all of these. Now, the God of the Bible doesn't need to meet all of these because if the the God of the Bible is the creator of all things, it will be natural to assume all these things would be the characteristics of God. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily, therefore, Christianity is true, but what that does mean is that it's more reasonable to think there is someone or something rather than nothing. And sometimes when you deal with people who do not believe that, they they resort to the answer, well, we don't know and we can't know. But each and every one of us uses deductive reasoning for the beliefs that we have, whether it's the theory of general relativity that's not completely sorted out yet, but it's there. Some people who who are set against Big Bang theory, um, the theory of evolution, all these things use deductive reasonings because they cannot be reproduced in a lab. So therefore, I would say the people who end there are intellectually lazy and they just don't want to deduce that these characteristics exist in the first place. So Ashley, you, you, you're saying that if we, just, if we think about what we see and what we see in the world, then it, there's evidence that God's behind it. Is there any other options? Do other people, because I know there's people that don't believe in God. Yeah. Um, well, if we believe in absolute truth, which absolute truth does exist, because saying it doesn't exist is an absolute truth statement, Um, If there's an absolute truth, we have to seek that. Now, some of us just don't want to seek that, and and that's each to their own. But we can't deny that there is an absolute truth that is knowable. Okay. Thank you. I'm happy with that. That that was a great answer, man. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. We're recording this, right? Because I want to be able to say those things, too. Okay, so uh, let's jump to our next question. How should we respond to others saying Jesus was never real? So uh, this is an interesting question. Let me just say from the top, there's no serious historian that would agree with this question. They might not agree with who Jesus said he was, but there's no serious historian that says, oh yeah, Jesus was never real. So this, is not, this question comes out of generally people who haven't thought through the issue more than it comes from a... Uh, scholarly approach to this question. And here's why they don't think that. So how would you prove that I'm real? How would I prove it? Well, you see me and you could, you can touch and you can hear. So you go, of course he's real. And what if I said to you, my grandfather, and you go, hold it. How do we even know you had a grandfather? And what was he like? Well, I could say, well, I'm here. That's proof that I had to have a grandfather, but I have people, my mother, my father, my sisters, they met my grandfather. They can tell you about them. They can witness about him. Okay. So you have other people that corroborate your story. What about Napoleon? Or what about uh, uh, Julius Caesar or Herodotus? What, what about these people that lived hundreds and thousands of years ago? We know nobody around that can say, I saw them, I knew them, except for the people that saw them and knew them and wrote about them. And so the writings become our source of evidence. It's called evidentiary knowledge. And so we use historical writings in order to determine that people actually exist. This is how our court systems work. You can't prove it scientifically, so you prove it with the evidence that you have. Now, when it comes to Jesus, he's, he is one of the best attested figures of historicity that there is. 
So uh, we have non-Christians, Josephus and Tacitus, who wrote about Jesus, who there was this man named Jesus who lived, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. They claimed he rose from the dead. So that's non-Christians that wrote about, from historical settings, about Jesus. So he shows up in non-Christian documents. But by far, the documents that talk about Jesus are in the Bible. And the Bible talks a lot about Jesus. And so the question becomes, well, how do you know you can really believe the Bible? I mean, how do we know that it's accurate about Jesus, that it's dependable? That's a, a study called textual criticism. And you, generally, basically speaking, textual criticism says this. Number one, that the more copies there are of the documents about the person, the more reliable, because the copies, the more copies you have, the more you can uh, see if they attest to the same thing. So, for instance, if there was an accident out in the highway there, like at the light, a car went through, and I was standing there and said, well, I saw the blue car come through a red light. So that's, okay, we got a witness. But if we had 25 witnesses that all said, yeah, we saw the blue car come through. I mean, the guy in the blue car, he's done, right? Like, there's no fighting that. There's too many witnesses. And so the first thing is, how many copies do you have? Because that is how you determine, is it reliable? And how far are the copies from the original story? Now, in our case, our original stories, like on, you know, if we get Instagram or Snapchat, are minutes. And, uh, but in ancient history, anything that was within two, three, four hundred years is considered relatively close because copies would be made very carefully of each of the documents every so many years. And so the closer you were to the original copy, it is assumed that the closer you are to the reality of what you're copying, less mistakes that are in it. So why am I saying all this? Well, you've heard of Herodotus. He existed sometime around four or 500 BC. The earliest copy we have of this man we know of, Herodotus, is 1,400 years from the time he lived. It's 900 AD. And so there's only about nine, five or nine copies about Herodotus that are even existing today. And there's like 1,400 years between those at the earliest. And so that means 1,400 years went by before we, copy after copy after copy after copy until we get to, her, to the one we have existing today. When you talk about Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, he's a thousand years, and there's only about nine copies or 20 copies of what he said. Julius Caesar, Gallic Wars, well-known, well-studied. There's about, again, 950 years between when Julius Caesar lived and the closest copy that we have, and there's only, I think, about 10 or 12 of those copies of Julius Caesar. And Livy, you've probably heard of the name Livy. It's probably a friend of yours, but there was actually a Roman named Livy, and he, again, about 1,000 years, 900 years between him and the... 20 copies of him around. And so we base our understanding of Herodotus, Tacitus, Livy, Julius Caesar on those originals, those few originals. Now, when you come to Jesus, the closest that, that we have, the copies that we have of Jesus' life are like 150, 170 years after he existed and, and, and to about three or 400 years. So the time frame is very small. And we have 5,300 Greek manuscripts about that, that support the Bible that we can count on. We have 10,000 Latin uh, manuscripts, and we have about 9,000 other men. So they have 10, 25, 9 copies. We have over 20,000 copies or fragments or manuscripts or full copies of the Bible that you can attest to and you can compare, and they come from so many different angles. And so Jesus, that's why no serious historian doubts that there was a Jesus, because he is so well attested in history. And so if you have this question, somebody, well, I don't even believe he was real, it's clear the person really hasn't uh, studied or thought about it because they don't understand the weight of evidence for Jesus. Here's another thing I would say real quickly too is, well, maybe I always hear, well, maybe somebody, they wrote the stories, they're not true, and they just copied the, the stories, which is entirely possible. People want to, you know, create a savior, so they pick a guy named Jesus and they build stories around him because he was an exceptional teacher, and before you know it, he's, you know, this wonder-working God that he never really was in person. But the problem with that is that the writers that wrote about him 
died because they wrote the things about Jesus and they refused to repent or change their mind and so chose to die because they said this is the truth. So, you know, somebody that's going to make up a story, it's going to benefit them somehow. That's why they're lying and that's why they're making it up. But the moment it costs them, they, they abandon the story. And if they're going to die for it, they're going to be, oh yeah, I was just lying. It was not, it's not true. It's, it, nobody's going to die for what they know is a lie. And so the, the, Jesus is just the best attested historical person from ancient uh, history that we have. Not to dwell on this any longer than, I mean, we're, our four minutes for this question is up, but I did want to add one more thing to uh, a- answer the, the uh, second question that you had about um, the reliability of the copies. I think it's also really important to point out that the copies within themselves are really accurate. Like, if you compare copies... There's a lot of accuracy between copies. And also, if the story was to have changed over time, we would see that through history. Um, As we look through the copies, there would be changes in the copies, yet there is not. Uh, With more recent copies versus older copies, there aren't changes in the story. And so you can then be assured that Jesus, his story has not changed over time. Great. Thanks. That's good. That's good. Thanks. Okay. So next question. So this is where you would, if you'd had questions about something one of us said, you could text it in and we would respond to you. So that's coming next in six months. How do you explain the Trinity and why does it matter? See, all these easy questions I I like to give to these guys. So they actually gave me all the easy ones. They're taking the hard ones, as you can tell. Yeah. How do you explain the Trinity and why does it matter, Lester? (laughs) That's a great question. You never use... An analogy. Never, never fall into the trap of using an analogy when uh, explaining the Trinity. The Trinity is the word that we use to describe who God is and how he is one God, but three in person. One God, three in person. These persons are equal in essence. They are different in role. They are not the same person. They are three person, but it is one God. And this concept of Trinity is greater than anything in the created universe, so we cannot use an analogy to describe what the Trinity is. Now, why does it matter? Right? We, we often think like, oh, it's this concept that God is three in one, okay, but it's like way too complicated for me to comprehend, so it doesn't matter. And that couldn't be further from the truth. For example, if I say I love my wife, Renee, and she loves to do, uh, she loves to lead worship, she loves to serve on the worship team or whatever she likes to do. And I say, well, I don't understand that and I don't get why you do that, so that part of me doesn't matter, uh, that part of you doesn't matter to me, I don't care, I just love you for the way I see you. Well, that's not really loving her, is it? If we say that we love God, and we want to know more about God, well, this is who God is, and so it is important. But the second and more relevant reason, maybe debatably, that the Trinity matters is because because the, the, the Trinity is three persons in the one Godhead, then we know that the relationship between the persons of the Trinity has been forever. It is eternal, meaning that Several things, but first, God did not create us to fulfill a relational void that he had. He's not sitting there thinking like, oh, I'm so lonely, I'll make some people. That's not true. Second, it tells us that love is eternal, that the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. So when God says that he loves you, that love has existed eternally. Love is an eternal concept, and it will defeat the sin that is temporary. Third, it tells us how we are to relate to one another within the body of Christ. Remember, God makes us in his image, and he makes us to reflect his relational nature. So we are too also to live in relationship with one another. So as brothers and, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to re- reflect the relational nature that God has and reflect the unity that he demonstrates within the Trinity. 
This is why it matters. And finally, it also spurs us on towards missional efforts as we see the relational God who is relational within himself also reaches out to relate to his creation. We too are again to relate to um, the, the, the people of God who do not yet know him. And so it, it really matters quite a lot uh, when we talk about uh, the Trinity, that God is a relational God within, within himself, but also with us. You know, while you were talking last year, it occurred to me that most of our, so many of our movies, so many of our songs, so much of our desire to be with family revolves around love. And it makes a lot of sense that God's character, his own personality is is built right within us and within our world. And so that's why love, it just shows up everywhere. And I, you know, I never really understood why, but it's because that's who he is. Yeah, thank you. That was good. See, now, if we were busy texting, a great follow-up question, which we don't have time for right now, would be to clarify, well, what different pictures of the Trinity um, are present in Christianity versus Mormonism versus Jehovah's Witnesses versus, you know, Islam, which would have been great because... All of them get it wrong, except us. I think the three of us might like that. Uh, <laughs> we'll let them text to see if they like yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. Okay, next question. Let's move on. Okay, so how should parents respond to gender topics, pronouns, homosexuality, multiple gender identities, etc.? So we want this time to be both theological questions like we just answered, but also relevant questions to the world and the culture we live in. And so Ashley, would you take this, please? Sure. So just to give you an idea, if you're, you haven't been exposed to, to this um, a lot, in ABC, ABC News in 2014, um, already in 2014, um, listed 58 different types of genders. Um, currently, right now, there are nine commonly used gender pronouns, um, and obviously the five forms in which they can be used equate to 45 pronouns that are commonly used, as well as... now. Just with regard to homosexuality, I want to rather frame it as sexuality because within the LGBTQIA plus um, community, there are 46 different types of sexuality just within that. So we are still addressing homosexuality, but just within the broader spectrum of the LGBTQIA plus. So a lot of you might think right now that that's quite overwhelming. Um, and just imagine what our kids are going through in school right now with the pressures of socially being accepted right now, having to look at all these things. And it's important for us to, to clarify that this is a worldview. Um, now, what that means, a worldview is how we see the world as well as the rules that govern the world that we see. Now, for us as Christians, our worldview is grounded in the Word of God. Um, and in, let's say, a secular worldview, it's more changed. Uh, it's more changed up by sociology, how, how trends are coming and going. And so it's important to clarify those two worldviews. And within this, it's important to know that when another worldview presents itself, we do not need to conform to that worldview, nor do does their worldview need to conform to ours? So I'm gonna create a scenario. Um, Ed, you're gonna have a secular worldview. All right, so I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions. Um, Ed, would you consider yourself a tolerant person? Yes. All right, and would you be tolerant of people who differ from you? Mostly. Yeah, and would you expect the same from other people to tolerate your beliefs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I would expect your answers to be yes, because what if I told you that I have a different view on certain things than you? Would you be able to tolerate me? Yeah, I mean, that's the world we live in, a lot of different views, sure. Would you expect me to tolerate you because I don't agree with your views? Well, when you put it like that, yeah, it makes it <laughs> far more... <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah, because, because that's been the fight for so many years is um, to not be bigots, right? so we can tolerate one another. And when we look at worldviews, it's important to reassure our kids that, you know, other people have different worldviews than you, and the most important thing that you can do is respect their worldview. You don't need to affirm it. You don't need to conform to it. But if we are to treat other people with respect, dignity, kindness, and love, we would hopefully expect the same back. But even if we do not get the same back, because I could guess in some scenarios 
where people would prefer me to use their pronouns in the third person, um, they would not respect the fact that I'm going to choose to rather use their name um, instead of he, she. Um, so, so within all of that, the only thing we can do in the scenario that is constructive and respectful is to teach our kids that people can have differing worldviews. It does not mean they are right necessarily, but as soon as we are out to tell them how bad they are and how this is not a good thing and it makes no logical sense and um, sex is determined, your gender is determined by your sex. And as soon as we start those conversations, um, it's a whole rabbit hole and, and it just results in destruction. As soon as we form relationships within respecting one another, that's where we can have open-ended conversations about these worldviews. Um, so if you want to learn as a parent more about this, there's a great book that just came out by Mama Bear Apologetics. It's called Guide to Sexuality, and it's meant for parents with their kids to have these types of conversations, as well as a more in-depth Christian perspectives on why we do not conform to that worldview. So really what you're saying is you're tagging off Ashley's or Lester's answer just previous that God, because he is love, and that comes out of the Trinity, and he treats us with love, then that's how we're to treat other people. And uh, I don't think there's a bigger gap than man and God, and yet God covers that gap with love. And so when we have a gap of different worldviews with other people, lo- we should be acting in love, right? That's what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Okay, next question. Why doesn't God stop rape or the killing of the innocent? You're up, Lester. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not taking it. (laughs) Tough question. Um, Actually, uh, this question has been asked for centuries, if not millennia. It's been asked so many times that it actually has a name. It's called the Theodicy. Theo. Theodicy, um, and it, it's such a tough question that I've actually—I'm uh, sure you know—and I have friends that have um, lost their faith because uh, uh, of the answers or not being able to answer this question. Now, the, essentially, this question boils down to this: uh, If God is so powerful and He is um, so able, like He. He, he, he can do anything if he is all-knowing and he sees everything and also he is righteous and he is good, why doesn't God stop evil? Now, the answer has two sides to the coin. First is the emotional side, right? This is an incredibly emotional uh, question, right? Because when when we ask the question, we think of maybe the child soldiers in Africa or girls that are caught up in the sex sex slave industry in in Asia, or we're we're thinking of uh, any atrocities that we we, uh, think of in the news or, or all these kinds of things that become incredibly emotional for us. But on the other side is the philosophical and and kind of logical uh, answer to the question. And we're going to go there first. We're going to put aside the the emotional for a second and just address the the, the philosophical for a second. Now, suppose that God gets rid of everything that is evil, just like we ask him to do. God, stop all the evil in the world so that there is just good. First of all, that would remove your agency. And we just talked about how God made us in his image. Well, one of those things that God made us to do is have agency, as in we have choices that we can make. So that removes our agency and removes us of the ability uh, to choose between uh, doing the right thing and the wrong thing. However, when he does that, give us uh, agency, then we are able to do the wrong thing. And the wrong thing has consequences. Uh, The wrong thing means that sometimes we're going to hurt each other. Not only this, but if he were to remove everything that is evil, also necessarily, then he would remove every single one of us. Because where would that stop? Right? Well, he removes all the rapists. Then he removes all the the adulterers. Then he removes all the, the, the cheaters and the liars. And the, well, that's everybody. We all have done something evil. Everybody dies. Everybody is obliterated. In fact, he did this once in Genesis, and he promised never to do it again. And so the answer is, God is gracious. And really, if you think about it like that, the whole question is wrong. 
The question is wrong. The question really ought to be, if God knows how sinful I am, if God knows what I did and thought and, 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 and tried to do yesterday or this morning, how is it that he continues to allow me to breathe, to exist on this earth because he is so righteous, because he is so holy? How is it that he allows me to be in his presence? And the answer is grace. It is grace upon grace that we are all still here. And so the answer to the question is really, why is God so good? Yeah, I think um, one of the things within this, this bad situation that presents itself is, is when we think of the situation, you know, God has posed the thing to us that, um, you know, whoever seeks him, whoever wants to follow him, has the opportunity to choose God. And as soon as God intervenes with something and takes that choice away from a person, um, I think that there's, there's no good, good scenario within this that happened to people. It's important to note that. But, you know, um, God gives um, the opportunity for redemption, the opportunity to offer forgiveness to each and every one of us. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's also our free wills at play. You know, for God to impose and say, hey, you're not, al- you're not allowed to do your free will in this situation um, would, would be him, him imposing with, within that. So I think it's an unfortunate, unfortunate broken world we live in. And yeah, we can't expect sin to constantly be happening. Yeah, and I, I would say the other side of that is that God does have a plan to redeem the world and uh, all those that do evil will in his justice be held accountable including us and that's why Jesus is so important because he took our place to die for our sins and pay for our punishment so that we could take his place in forgiveness through forgiveness of sins with God and his plan is just maybe not as quick as we want his plan has been taken millennia but it's coming to an end he has a plan We've seen him uh, develop that plan through Genesis, through the Old Testament, through the coming of Jesus, through the coming of the church. It's not that God isn't dealing with this. It's just he's not dealing with it as quickly as maybe we would want. And to have it as quickly as we would want would make us less than human and, and make him violate decisions that he has made. So really, I like your, the way you reframed it, Lester. Thanks. So uh, let's go to the next question. Again, so if you're texting, you'd be able to, hey, I want to talk. I want to ask you something you just said. I'm not sure I understand or agree with what you just said. Uh, should we expect an immediate behavioral change in an openly gay or transgender person at the moment of their sincere conversion? Now, this question and some of these other questions are telling me the reality of what some of you are facing in your families you're facing at work, you're facing on sports teams, you're facing with friends. And so these are legitimate questions. And I, I take it that the people that are asking these, I don't know who's asking these questions, but they came to us, you're asking, how do I deal with this as a Christian? And I think that's the kind of questions we need to be talking about as a church so that we can offer hope and relevancy to people in our world. And so, Ashley, do you want to take this one? All right. Um, So I think when we look at this question, um, at the end of the question, it says at the moment of their sincere conversion. So to me, what that's saying is the conscious decision that someone says, um, I believe in Christianity, I believe in Christ, and I choose to follow him. And it's that thing in our minds that say, hey, you know what? I sincerely follow Christ, therefore I need to identify things in my life that are sinful, um, that are taking me away from Christ. So that is my understanding of the moment of sincere conversion. Now when we talk about immediate behavioral change, there are two things, because it's, 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 it, in, it encompasses a lot of things. So when we talk about immediate behavioral change, if we're referring to practicing homosexuality, perhaps going through a transition, um, or you've perhaps gone through a transition and you're, you identify as a transgender person, I think within all of those, the immediate behavioral change that we would expect, firstly, is in the mind, saying, hey, you know what, what I'm doing, what I'm practicing, where I am in right now is, 
is wrong according to Christ and Christ's plan for me. Now, stopping that in every situation is going to look different. It's going to, in one situation, you might be in a same-sex marriage and you might have kids. What does it look like to stop? Um, You might just be single and find the same-sex attractive and and it might be an easier situation that this person finds themselves in to consciously decide, you know what, it is wrong. The attraction's never necessarily going to go away, but I might need to conform to a life of celibacy. Um, if you're busy going through a transition, that situation's going to look different compared to someone who might have already transitioned, who's not able to transition back. So, It's important within all of these that we manage our expectations of what a immediate behavioral change looks like in the first place. Um, And within all of that, um, it's our job to embrace and show grace towards our fellow brothers and sisters who are going through the reality of the situation. The other side of a behavioral change could also be this, the way someone walks or talks or acts or dresses. And I think expecting them to immediately act more masculine or feminine or dress differently, talk differently, I think that's an unrealistic expectation and I think we should get rid of that because you're asking someone to not be who they are. You're asking someone to not be authentic to their true self. Um, now, I think all of us within this have our own things that, that we have that might not be as intense as finding same-sex um, attractiveness because that's never going to go away. You know, I might look at certain women and find them attractive. It, doesn't, it does not mean I act on those attractions or on those impulses, but that's easier for me to say because I have the opportunity of of marrying my wife and 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 continuing with that. So the constant life struggle within the situation, um, and it's a life struggle because it's never going to go away. Is is how we as a church also embody people going through this journey um, with open arms and to love and support them in the trials and tribulations. Because just as we sometimes speed on the highway. Um, just as we sometimes fall into a gambling addiction, just as we sometimes might be addicted to alcohol and we go back to that, or where we beat our wives, um, sometimes we fall back into those struggles and we sin. No one's sinless, and I think we should get rid of that expectation, but I think it all starts within the mind, the conscious decision that this is wrong. Yeah. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tough question, tough situation, um, but following Christ isn't easy. And he calls us out of ourselves. I mean, just take out those situations. You know, should we expect immediate behavioral change to somebody who um, was an adulterer or somebody who cheated people in business, somebody who lies all the time, somebody who gossips all the time? I mean, it's the same thing. Any sin, any sin separates us from God. And so repentance means changing, agreeing first in our minds. Now I'm starting to repeat you, so I'm going to stop. Next question. <laughs> is hell a real place, and what is it like? I remember when I was in seminary, I was, I was dealing with this and, and was reading some different authors and really began to wonder if hell was real because it doesn't seem very loving, right? Trinity. The Trinity, it doesn't seem like a loving thing. And so I went on a bit of a quest to try to f- decide where I was going to land on this. When I listened uh, to most of the, my profs and major speakers, they all believed in hell. Uh, the, the history of the church overwhelmingly since the time of Jesus has believed that there's such a place as hell. And I got thinking about it. Most major religions believe there's some sort of place where justice is fulfilled and people pay for their 
uh, wrongs. But then the, the one that got me was Jesus. And he, the most loving of all human beings, the perfect, the son of God, he often taught about hell. He often taught about eternal condemnation. And in fact, the end of Matthew, this was the verse that kind of clinched it for me. The end of Matthew chapter 25, and he's the sheep and the goats chapter where he's judging. And he says, now to all goats, you go away to eternal condemnation. And then the, the sheep, you go to eternal life. And the, the word eternal, used both of eternal condemnation and eternal life, is the exact same word, which means this. Either there is an eternal condemnation and an eternal life, or there isn't either one. So if there's no eternal condemnation, that means there's no such thing as eternal life because Jesus used the exact same word to describe both states of being. And so if there isn't one, there isn't the other. And I wasn't, uh, like, I wasn't a novice to the scriptures, and I knew it taught, and Jesus talks a lot about eternal life. And so for me to say there is no hell, as much as it's difficult as it is, for me to say there is not a hell means there is not a heaven. And now I'm discounting all the teaching of Jesus. I have to take out huge verses and passages from the scripture where he teaches about it. So what is it like? Hmm. So I align with Billy Graham on this one. So you can there's scriptures that teach about the... The fire, the burning, the worm never dying, um, the uh, darkness. Uh, they can be literal or they could be figurative, describing a very painful reality. And those terms with fire and burning and all that are used to convey the idea of great pain. So I personally have come down um, on the side that those are figures of speech. Not because there isn't a hell. I believe there is hell. And not because I don't believe hell is painful, but because I believe that's the best way to interpret the scriptures. And then when the authors are using, in particular Jesus, using terms to describe hell, he's trying to describe what it would be like to be eternally separated from God. And burning in a fire, to me, is the most painful image I could ever imagine of that. But the reality is, nobody is in hell that didn't choose to be there. Every person in hell is a statement that God has given every person exactly what they wanted and what they deserve. Not just what they deserve, but what they wanted. Every per- we talked about free will. Every person chooses to receive God or to reject God at some points in their life, often many points. And each person that says, I don't want God, I want to do life my way, is saying, I want to live in a reality where there is no God. What would that reality be like? It would be a place of deep loneliness, deep pain, deep rejection, no beauty, no light, no joy, no happiness, no hope. That would be like burning forever. So yeah, I believe there is a hell, and I believe it's a place of deep, deep pain. So, so you would affirm then that they stay there forever? Yes. Mm. Uh, I, I asked the question because there are some denominations that would say that uh, when you get to hell, you are tortured for a time or you're in pain for a time and then you cease to exist um, and you're extinguished. Uh, and I don't think that any of the three of us would affirm that. No, and Mark 9, Jesus talks about it being eternal, but also Matthew 25 where he says eternal condemnation. The term eternal means forever. So out of Jesus' mouth is the answer to your question. Yeah, because if it comes down to not the sin itself, but it's more the fact that you choose, you know what, I want to be separated from God. And through sin, that's what everyone chooses. Yeah, the, the worst, what's the worst sin? Scripture says it's to not believe. Everybody in hell is a person who's chosen not to believe. That is the, the worst sin. Scripture says, look that one up. I was shocked when I found that. I'm like, it doesn't seem like a bad sin. Because you're calling God a liar. Anyway, next question. Faith is believing in something that you cannot see, and there is insufficient evidence 
When discussing faith, one must look no further than Abraham. Abraham was revered for his faith, for almost killing his son, Isaac, because God commands it. Then God reverses his decision and says, it was just a test of faith. My question is, if Abraham is having conversations with God, he has evidence of God. Why does he need, what does he need faith for? I think Lester, this was yours. Yeah, that's mine. I love this question. First, it tells me that you're actually reading the scripture, but also that you're trying to think critically about uh, what you're reading. Now, I do have to make a couple corrections on this question, however. Uh, First of all, uh, the question posits that... uh, God changes his mind. Like he suddenly, he, you know, Abraham gets to the top of the mountain and then he changes his mind. This is not the case. If you read the story carefully, the very first sentence of the story is, now God tested Abraham. So the narrator is trying to tell you the whole time that God is intending to test him, not for him to actually carry through so that you aren't confused as to God asking for child sacrifice. God at never, never at any moment expects Isaac to die. Okay, so that's first. God never changed his mind on that. Number two, Number two is that uh, the God, or Abraham is counted faithful because he uh, goes to sacrifice his son uh, or kills his son. That's not entirely true either. In Hebrews eleven seventeen, remember it says that uh, Abraham is counted faithful because he believes that somehow God can resurrect his son Isaac. Uh, where do we get that from? We get that from Abraham's very own words in the story. It's very easy to miss, but when he goes to leave his servants with the donkeys, he says something really critical to them. He says, and we will return. A lot of the times when... um, uh, prominent figures are referring to other people and they have a group behind them, they will just simply say, in the Hebrew especially, they'll just say, I will return, right? They mean the whole group of us will return, but they'll just say, I. But here in this specific instance, he very specifically says, we will return. So Abraham believes that if he sacrifices his son Isaac, he will still get him back somehow. That God has the power, if he had the power to give me this child, that also, if I sacrifice him, God has the power to resurrect him as well. So those are two things. The third thing that we have to realize with this question is that Abraham's faith is not being tested on whether or not the existence of God is real. We think about faith as that kind of thing because we're Western, and our kind of uh, culture says, you know, maybe God isn't real, and so, like, uh, our faith is tested that way. For Abraham, God is real. What was in question for Abraham was God's faithfulness. Is God who he says he is? Right? That's the big question. Is Abraham willing to put everything on the line, because Isaac is everything, Put everything on the line and trust that God is good and God will keep his promise. That is the test. Does Abraham think that God is faithful? And in the same way, we often are tested in the same way today. Do we believe in the promises of God? Do we believe that he is going to carry us through in our difficult circumstances? God often tests us like this, and it's difficult. It's hard. hard. It, it, it's heart-wrenching, right? But this is the point of being tested. The testing is for the perfecting of our faith. And so it was necessary that Abraham was tested, and tested this specific way because Isaac represented God's promises to Abraham. Amen! <laughs> yeah, preach it! you got to make a sermon out of that story. You're already I, I, preaching. I have. It was fantastic. Yeah. Okay, uh, we got to skip. We're coming to an end. Uh, we're going to skip down three more questions uh, to the question that uh, decisions about the Bible. So could we skip down... Uh, uh, yeah, when the Bible isn't, is, is not explicit on modern day... So this will be our last question. When the Bible is not explicit on modern day realities like marijuana use, Halloween, vaccines, how should the Bible direct us to make wise, God-honoring decisions? Now, the key word for me there is wise. 
80% of the things you face in life are not directly addressed in Scripture. 80% of your decisions that you make, there is no thou shalt, thou shalt not. Okay, so for the 20% that there are, there's no question. It's like the only question is, will I obey God or will I not? What we struggle with are things like this. There is no thou shalt not use marijuana. There is no thou shalt not celebrate Halloween. Thou shalt not be vaccinated or vaccinated or thou shalt be vaccinated. There isn't a thou shalt for those. So what do we do? Wise people, hear me now, build a life and grow in wisdom by acting wise. Wisdom is something you either gain by your experience or you forfeit by your decisions. So if you want to be a wise 30-year-old, you need to act wisely in your 20s and teens. You want to be a wise 40-year-old, you need to act wisely in your 20s and 30s. If you want to be a wise 50 or 60, you have to act wisely. So how do you act wisely? That's the question. Well, first, if it says thou shalt, thou shalt not, the wise person does or does not obey scripture. That's what the whole fall was about when we went through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Those that truly follow me are those that obey me. I know if you're a true follower because you obey me. So that's the first thing. Oh, but my decision is not one of those things in Scripture. The first thing you have to do is, do you seek God? Because when I read my Scriptures alone and I pray to God, it's amazing how he speaks to me. It's amazing how he uses stories or verses or Proverbs to direct my thinking on what is wise. So the first thing, if you want to be wise about these things, first seek God in the Bible. That's why regularly meeting with him daily is so important. I can't tell you the number of times I'm facing a decision, and in my morning devotional times, God speaks to me about it. He gives me wisdom. He gives me insight. His word is a light to my path. It directs my mind. He instructs me. He teaches me. He's alive. His spirit speaks to me. But if you're not doing that, if if you're not in the word and in prayer, you're not going to get that. So the first thing is you seek God. The second thing is you seek wise people around you. This is one that we neglect too often. There are people that have walked through your circumstances or ones very much like that that have learned wisdom and have acted wisely. Go talk to them. You'll be shocked at what comes out of their mouth, how wise they are, how they are able to, to, to consolidate it into one clear thought, how clearly, how the things that they see, amazing. But if you do, if you do not go to those people, if you don't seek God and you don't seek wise people, you're never going to know what they're saying about it. But wise people seek God. Wise people seek wise people. And then there's guides in our life. Like, for instance, the medical, uh, like the vaccine issue or the marijuana issue. There's guides in our life that are medical reality. Seek what are the what are medical um, community saying about this? So now I understand the problem if we deal with vaccines. If if you're online, you you can get ten people that say no, ten people that say yes. They all seem right. But who's in your life that you trust medically, or who's in your life that you trust? Like when it comes to addictions, people that have dealt with addictions. Who are you talking to that will be guides to help you through this? And here's the final question. What would a wise person do? Whenever you have it to make a decision, ask yourself. This, uh, Andy Stanley taught this, and, I, and it's just absolutely incredible question. What would a wise person do? And you know what? A lot of times we know in our heart what the wise thing is to do. It's just we don't want to do it. Something's compelling us to make a bad decision. But what would I say? So you want to be wise in these areas? Seek God in his word and prayer. Seek other wise people. Go to the guide, guides that are in this area. What are they saying about it? And then ask yourself, really, what would a wise person do? So I need to shut us down here because uh, thank you, Lester. Thank you, Ashley. You guys uh, did a great job. Really appreciate it. I'm telling you, you got to see a little bit of the depth that these two men carry. Our staff, our staff is an incredibly talented group of people. They're deep. 
And there, there's a lot of humility in our staff. And you just saw a little bit through two of them right now. So thank you very much. Thank you. Now, this year is a year uh, that we God gives to us. We don't know what's coming, but we know the one who loves us because he's a trinity. We know the one who's just. We know the one who promises to be with us. And he will walk with you and I through this year. So let's stand and commit ourselves to him this year. We, Jesus, believe that you are who you said you were. We believe that you're God. We believe that your death and resurrection that we celebrated in communion today is truth and reminds us that our faith is built upon the unalterable fact that God became man and as a man died on the cross for us to reconcile us to you and to deal with our sin. And that is the bedrock of our faith. Now, as we have questions and doubts, as issues come this year, we pray for your unwavering grace and love toward us. Thank you. Thank you for this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Ashley, do we have announcements?